0: I'm excited to be joined by Timothy Alvarino. Timothy is an explorer and a researcher. He's also the author of the new book, Birthright. Timothy, thanks so much for joining me on Megalithic Marvels. I'm
1: very happy to be here with you.
0: You live, just so people know, in Peru for several years, it sounds like. So two things. I want to know, do you have a favorite uh, megalithic site in Peru? One, and then in your documentary film series, uh, True Legends, Technology of the Fallen, you share a myriad of accounts that you found from Spanish chroniclers documenting the existence of giant skeleton bones that were seen in Peru. I mean, there's so many. Yeah. Either all of these guys were lying or there's something to it.
1: If we talk about the most exquisite walls that I've ever seen in my life, that's Ojante Tambo. So in terms of the, of the, of the sheer precision of the megalithic walls, Ojante Tambo is my favorite site. But if you talk about just the jaw-dropping enormity of the megaliths, it's Iwaman. If you talk about just the um, just the picturesque beauty of the site, it's Machu Picchu. So, um, really, that's how I would uh, divide those. That's how I would uh, determine that. So, if we're just talking about, like I said, just the jaw-dropping. If you've never seen a megalithic wall and you want to be absolutely stunned, go to Sacsayhuaman. Go to Sacsayhuaman in Cusco. If you've never seen a megalithic wall, you, 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 you will be picking your jaw up after, off the floor. I don't know if you've ever been to Sacsayhuaman, but it's, it's just to be up close. Because a lot of the pictures that you see about, of Sacsayhuaman are distant, right? Because people want to capture the whole wall. You don't really realize how friggin' big those walls are.
0: I remember doing a Google image search of like ancient sites. And for the first time ever, I saw a photograph of Soksewaman on the, the walls. And, you know, just thinking critically, I, I knew this was special. Like, this is this is more incredible than any other ancient ruin I've ever seen. And my next thought was, why have I never seen this before?
1: Let me make one more comment about Soksewaman. It's important to recognize that Waman was probably twice the size in terms of the height of the walls during the time of the conquest than it is now. Imagine that, okay? That's just even, just as mind-blowing. In certain parts of Machu Picchu, you have the Inca, that clear Inca. This was old. You can tell it was there for a long time. This was not reconstruction because there's lots of stuff on top of it. And you can see where the megalithic stones literally just end. And it's not a nice, like a nice, even layer of megaliths. It's like, it's like, looks like it was just like a, like a ruined wall, right? And then somebody came in and just filled it in. And why would the Inca do that? If this site was so Machu Picchu, if it was so sacred to the Inca, and it was, why would they not rebuild the walls using, let's say they built the, let's say the Inca did build the megalithic foundations. Why would they stop and then use smaller stones to repair them? Who does that? If it was so easy for you to build this thing, just repair it with the big megalithic stones. But that's never the case, ever, never the case. You always see the repair jobs done with inferior skill, smaller stones, inferior skill. And it doesn't make any sense. Um, we wouldn't do that. And they wouldn't do that. It's not intuitive and it's not practical. And by the way, and I think this is surely something you're very aware with, aware of in your audience the, the, the most impressive feature of megaliths, true megaliths, is not the size of the stones. Large megalithic stones can be moved by primitive people. They can. And they are, even to this day. They can. And in precisely the manner that archaeologists say. You can move a huge stone with ropes and sleds and lots of people, lots of manpower. You can. They're doing it in India today. They're still doing it in ceremonial stuff. You can see it on YouTube. Um, however, that's not the thing that's most impressive about megaliths. Cutting the stone and assembling the, the stones the way that they do, that's now you're talking. Now you're not just talking about dragging something heavy. Now you're talking about mathematics. Now you're talking about engineering. Now you're talking about science. Okay dragging a stone through the woods on a sled. There's very little knowledge involved in that. But when you start to erect these stones and build things with them, then you're operating on a level like, you know, that, that it took a long time uh, for the Greeks and the Romans to figure out how to do this. And they weren't even really working with the size stones that are, that are uh, like in the walls of Sacsaywaman, for example, in some cases, the Romans, the Romans were incredible. They really were, they were amazing builders. Um, mm-hmm. But the point is this, none of that, what I just mentioned, is really the thing that is most astounding about megaliths. What what is most astounding about the megaliths, what the Romans could not rival, what the Greeks could not rival, didn't even come close, is the anti-seismic properties of those walls. Forget it. The Roman stuff falls down in in earthquakes and has and always has to be repaired. The Greek stuff has, through the the ages, crumbled and fallen and dilapidated because of earthquakes and so forth and floods and things. But when you are standing in in front of a truly megalithic wall that is still pretty much intact, and remember... These walls are always going to be subject to people coming and taking the smaller portions off to build other things, right? They're always going to repurpose the walls. Whatever culture is around is going to come over. They want to build a wall, you know, around their, uh, around their a field, right? What are they going to do? Are they going to go quarry new stones? No, they're going to go over to that megalithic building over there, megalithic complex, and they're going to find the stol- stones that are manageable and they're going to take them away. So all that you're going to be left with are the stones that are unmanageable, Right. When you look at these stones, large portions of these walls are still standing today, like Sacsayhuaman. They are built on a precise inclination. They are so well fitted together that it's apparent that they have withstood hundreds, if not thousands of years of seismic, extreme seismic activity, like Cusco. In Cusco, you have in the city of Cusco, walk through the streets of Cusco, you're going to see three kinds, at least three different kinds of construction. You're going to see, aside from the modern construction, you're going to see the Inca. You're going to see their stuff. You're going to see the Spanish, who repurposed a lot of the Inca stuff, and you're going to see something far more impressive than either of those. I mean, in amazing. Uh, for example, in the in the in the Roca Temple um, near the Plaza, you're going to see amazing megalithic constructions. And Cusco has been subject to really violent seismic activity for a long time. In fact, er, we have in the historical records um, routinely uh, massive earthquakes hitting periodically hitting Cusco and knocking down the cathedrals, right, leveling the cathedrals, leveling the Inca palaces. But guess what? Doesn't fall. The megalithic walls are not moved. Why? Because they were specifically designed to withstand seismic uh, perturbations of the earth. They were, they, were, they were designed to flex, to sway with seismic waves. And everything else around them just breaks apart and falls down. That is technology that is knowledge that is that is ancient knowledge that even surpasses our ability today to build stone walls now we can build skyscrapers and stuff i'm talking about masonry stone to build stone walls that would last that long subject uh, subjugated to that much uh, subject to that much seismic activity and yet still pristine That's what we need to think about when we look at these megaliths. You know, size of the stones, yeah, that's impressive. The way they're cut and configured, even more impressive. But the seismic, the anti-seismic capabilities, the technology involved to make these walls anti-seismic, the knowledge, that is where I think uh, we should be most impressed when we're looking at these walls.
0: So tell us a little bit about these Uh, Spanish chronicles talking about Peruvian giants? Because again, everybody will talk about the megaliths of Peru, but you don't hear many people talking about these tales of giants.
1: The Inca had their own legends and stuff because they were kind of presenting themselves as the superior culture among the other natives, the Inca. So you have the Inca who create their own, their own mythology uh, regarding themselves. But, then you have all of the other tribes around them who have a different mythology and i think a much older mythology than the inca these are the aymara, the aymara people the aymara people up in near lake titicaca in the bolivia and in, in peru up near lake titicaca very ancient people the aymara, the aymara people and then you have the then you have of course the quechuan people who were in in a lot of the other parts of Peru, you know, especially northern from Cusco going north, you have a lot of Quechuan people. So, so, so you have the Aymara people and the Quechua people. And even to this day, these two groups of people are very connected to their roots. They still speak their own language. In some cases, there's communities that I've been in, uh, Aymara communities near Lake Titicaca, where they don't speak Spanish. They only speak Aymara. That's it. Uh, And there's Quechuan communities like that. They only speak Quechuan. They don't speak a lick of Spanish. So they're very connected to their roots. Um, And they still maintain, even to this day, that the megaliths were built by giants. If you talk to... You know, the Inca really didn't have commentary on the megaliths. You don't really find commentary. They don't say, we built them, or the the Inca... believe. Although there is commentary on uh, Tiwanaku in Bolivia. Tiwanaku was believed to be built by the gods or the giant offspring of the gods, the demigods, the Cyclopes, right? The Cyclopes. So so the Aymara people and the Quechuan people, their m- mythologies always reference giants. The Inca also have mythologies concerning giants. They believe that the first race that was created by Biracocha were giants and that those giants were destroyed in a flood. Um, but the Aymara believe that the megaliths were built by giants. The Quechuan's believe that the megaliths were built by giants, the offspring of the gods. In fact, in the, chroni- in the records, the chronicles, now understand that when I reference the chronicles, I am talking about the same chroniclers that the history of Peru, that, that uh, Prescott, for example, who wrote uh, The Conquest of Peru, Phenomenal book, never read it. Phenomenal. Um, he used these chronicles to write the the history of Peru, and this is still the definitive history of Peru today. The Conquest of Peru by by Prescott. Um, Prescott was using the same materials that I used in my documentary film, uh, the first one, "Technology of the Fallen," uh, to s- s- citing the the. Uh, um, the, the commentary by the chroniclers by the conquistadors and chroniclers concerning the bones of giants and the and and the and what the natives believed about the giants and what the chroniclers and the conqui- and the conquistadors encountered themselves and there's just amazing stuff in there so understand that in between the historical portions that we have in, in the classics, like Prescott, and even in our modern test books, in between those historical portions concerning the conquest of Peru, what you don't realize is that there's portions that have been excised that talk about giants, from the same document. And that makes sense, because the purpose of the chroniclers was not to chronicle the history of giants, but the conquest of Peru, right? So they would overlook certain aspects that were not as important. I mean, the historians, the historians who were working from the, from the material of the chroniclers, from the chronicles. There, Prescott wasn't interested in talking about giants. He was interested in talking about the conquest of Peru. So it's natural that he would probably be befuddled by these accounts of giants. They had nothing to do with his history. So that's why he would skip over them. Um, but they're there. They're there because, well, I've seen them and I've read them and I've read them in old Spanish. And uh, I was working with a, an arch- a, a pretty famous uh, archaeologist in Peru. Um, I can't remember his first name. His last name is de la Vega. And he was, we were talking about the the chronicles um, as they relate to uh, tales of giants. And he was familiar with with. Uh, the fact that the chroniclers did have actually a lot of commentary about giants, but he had never actually gone in and done a study himself. So the following day after our conversation, he came over to me over to, over to the hotel. And he, and he met with me and he was very excited to hand me this CD, this uh, CD, this uh, um, um, like a DVD type CD. And he said, he said, after our conversation, I went back into the chronicles and I did a search And I found, and I looked for these references to giants. And he said, I can't believe how many there are. I never realized how many references to giants there were in the, in the, in the chronicles. And he said, so what I've done is I've highlighted just some of them for you. I highlighted them because you only did it, you know, the night before, I highlighted them, some of them here so that you can take a look. And it turns out that there are dozens and dozens of references of not just mythology relating to giants from native mythology of the giants, indigenous um, stories related to giants, but actual accounts from the, from the conquistadors and the chroniclers of not only finding the bones of giants, but the bodies of giants. And, you know, the first thing that people will say, well, they were mistaking uh, dinosaurs for giants or giant sloths for giants or whatever. Um, probably in some cases, perhaps, but when you get, when when you have stories, when you have these these uh, records in the chronicles, where you have the bones of giants being discovered with jewelry, bracelets, things that things of that nature on the skeletons. Last time I checked, dinosaurs didn't wear bracelets. Giant sloths didn't wear necklaces. They weren't buried in sarcophag sarcophagi, right? I don't know of any dinosaurs that have ever been discovered buried. I mean, I mean, uh, encased in, in inside of a casket, a, a stone casket. Obviously, we're not talking about a giant sloth here. And it, it gets even more detailed than that, because in one in one case, the chroniclers talk about. Uh, I forget which chronicle it is. Um, I have all this in the in the first documentary film, um, but there's a, there's a, there's a particular story in which Pizarro, Francisco Pizarro, the conqueror of Peru, was riding across the landscape. I believe he was heading north from Cusco with with a company of conquistadors, Spaniards, and they came across about the body of a giant the, the remains of a giant skeletal remains of a giant that had been unearthed on the bank of a river so in other words the river washed it away and they described that it like a sarcophagus right and then this body that had dumped out of the sarcophagus and they said it was so large that they took their they took their rapier swords and they stuck and they stuck it through the eye socket the, the skeletal eye socket the cranial eye socket and that it was so large, the head was so large that they were able to sink their rapier all the way into the head so that the hilt of their swords touched the eye socket before the point of the blade touched the back of the cranium. You know, I mean, rapiers were, they varied in length, but they were not short. Rapiers were not like that. They were, they were pretty long swords. So you're talking about massive skeletal remains that these guys are, are, Reporting, they, that they've that they've discovered, in many cases too, many different stories. One of my favorite is, um, and again, I can't remember exactly. I want to say um, Ariaga uh, that this comes from Ariaga's account, his chronicle, that there was a there was a, there was a situation in Peru after the conquest in which the, the emissaries of the Catholic Church, the priests and the bishops, and so forth we going through the territory that the territory that, that that was the territory of the of the inca and and the native tribes in general after the conquest is post conquest and they they had a mission their mission was to extirpate idolatry among the natives and extirpate means exterminate to get rid of the idolatry among the natives and, 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 and in many cases to forcefully convert them to to christianity to catholicism and so you have these priests, but the priests, these Catholic priests were not going through the countryside by themselves. They were accompanied by, at least in Ariaga's case, they were accompanied by what were called the visitadores, the visitors. And the visitadores were official representations of the Spanish crown who were in Peru. So you had the You had the Catholic priests, the Spanish Catholic priests, and you had representatives from the crown, royal representatives. These people were representing the king of Spain. And one of the reasons why they were there was because the Spanish had a system worked out with the conquistadors all over the new world that a fifth, one fifth, it was called the royal fifth, one fifth of the treasure that they found went back to Spain to the king, the crown. It was called the the royal fifth. And so you have the visitadores there accompanying the uh, the priests on this mission to extirpate idolatry and to make sure that a fifth of the treasure, gold, the golden idols and so forth, a fifth of it goes back to the crown. So this is a very practical mission that we're talking about. And, and these guys and the visitadores were taking official records as they went along. And so right in the midst of this operation, you have this several stories, but you have this one, my favorite story is that they came upon as they were extirpating idolatry, going from village to village. So the, the modus operandi would be, they would get to the village, they would find out what the people were worshiping, what were their idols. They would gather their idols. If they were wooden, they'd burn them. If they were metal, they'd melt them down. Obviously, if they were gold, they'd melt them down and, and take the gold. Um, but whatever the, the, the natives were worshiping, they were going to destroy. They were extirpating idolatry. So they are looking for the idols. Um, and so there's this one story where they came into a village, and they inquired as to what the idol, what were the gods, what were the where were the idols, and they found out that this particular tribe of natives, community of natives, were worshiping something in a cave. And so they 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 went into the cave to go and get these idols, whatever they were worshiping in the cave. And when they entered the cave they record that there were a lot of dead gentiles laying around so human sacrifice right so you have all these these dead gentiles so dead natives laying around and they were shocked to discover that the natives were not worshiping you know some some totem pole or something but instead they were worshiping the bodies the carcasses of giants giant humanoids that were that were, that were erected in this cave and dressed in cumbia, it says. Cumbia is the ceremonial cloth, like the royal ceremonial cloth that the Inca would wear and the natives. So they had dressed these the corpses of these giants or skeletal remains of these giants in cumbia, and they were worshiping them. And it says that the giants' heads were deformed. And the way that they describe it, it, it seems to me that they were elongated. And so, um, and they say, Ariaga says that, again, I believe it was Ariaga says that the, they were six times the size of a normal man. And so what did they do? They took the bodies out of the cave and they burned them in the village. And this is all recorded. It's all recorded right there in the Chronicles. So you can believe if you want that they were worshiping the bones of a philo- velociraptor or of a giant sloth, but I tend to think that uh, these ancient people were not as stupid as we think they were. They were very much acquainted with death, much more than we are, very much acquainted with anatomy in a way that we aren't. And we're scientifically acquainted with anatomy, but they were actually dealing with dead bodies. They were actually burying bones and handling things much more than we are. So... To, to, to the notion that they would be mistaken—that they would mistake a, a human skull for like a dinosaur skull, a skull, a, a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex—I think is a little far fetched. Possibly a uh, giant sloth, but there are so many accounts of giants, and those are just two, out of many dozens of accounts of giants and living giants, giants that the uh, stories of giants that the natives told, just. The chronicles, believe me, are replete with stories of giants. Most people have no idea. So, if the chron- now, let me let me ask you this: So, if the chronicles of the Inca, right, of the of the conquest of Peru, are replete with stories of giants and, and, and encountering bones and stuff, I'm going to guess that the chronicles of other ancient cultures, insofar as we have them, are also replete with such stories, or were at one time, because it's not unique to Peru. But it just so happens that the chronicles, the Spanish chronicles are, no one ever goes looking for stories of giants in there. And so you never hear about them. In fact, I might be the first person ever to publish some of those stories. Right out of the chronicles, not out of a book that somebody wrote out of the chronicles. I was reading the chronicles, uh, that, and, and especially the excerpts that were given to me by the archaeologist in Peru and he went into the archives the digital archives of the chronicles and uh you know copied them right out of there so you know people can believe what they want i and that's just one little you know the other those are just little anecdotes from one one very narrow topic uh you know specifically the chronicles of peru but you can find anecdotal evidence of giants everywhere all over the earth um and uh, so, you know, a lot of it, yes, a lot of it uh, hoaxes, like in the United States in the, in the 19th century, there was a lot of hoaxing going on about a lot of things. Sure. But not all of it, not all of it.
0: Yeah. And uh, Timothy, man, thanks so much for your time today. This has been a fascinating interview. So to everybody watching or listening, go to uh, com, and you can find links to his new book, Birthright.
1: Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate you having me on and, uh, uh, by the way people can also the, my books on amazon you can go right to amazon.com just type in birthright in my name and you'll see it but yeah this was a this was really fun and uh you know it'd be it'd be great to come back and we we there's so many more topics that uh we could dive into
0: i think we we only got to about half my topics but this will definitely just uh keep you on hook for another interview so thanks again man thank you